Hello and welcome to another festive episode of Mostly Weather. My name is Neil Robinson and today I'm joined by Doug McNeil. Hiya. Claire Whittam. Hello. And we've got a special eminent guest, Phil Brown. Hello. So Phil's joined us today from the observation-based research team here at the Met Office. Phil, you're an expert in cloud observation, is that right? That's right, yes. I work with observations on our research aircraft. Brilliant. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the festive subject of snow. So guys, first of all, what kind of conditions do we need for snow in the UK, I guess? I can think of two. Go on then. Wet and cold. Wet and cold. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we need some kind of precipitation, right? Because snow is just a, another form of precipitation, obviously, like rain. So what do we need beyond wet and cold, precisely, then? Well, we need cold to be below a certain level of cold, if you like. So, yeah. you know, actually, I don't think it has to be really cold to get snow. I think you can get snow at sort of less than six degrees, but typically we'd normally be thinking about zero or much, much colder. Uh, so we're looking at where the air is coming from probably yeah. i can i'm seeing where you're going with this yeah. now as to how cold is that air mass going to be to yeah, get so the what, snow what's the prevailing direction of snow that we get in the uk am i right in thinking that normally we get weather in the uk from the southwest right which is why we tend to be pretty warm and wet a lot of the time but for snow when we get snow actually that's when that situation isn't quite like that where it gets reversed so when we get air mass coming in from the east and from the north in winter, that's the time we get really cold air. Yep, that's it. And then the places that you think about as being colder anyway, so the Arctic, so air from the north, mm-hmm. and also thinking like Scandinavia and, you know, the high hills of Norway and things like that, which you might, in your mind, think about as being cold and snowy and, you know, Lapland, that kind of thing, yeah. for the Christmas area. So that deals with the cold bit. So how do we get the wet bit? There's another part of the recipe, isn't there? We need to get water into the air. Most of it's coming from the ocean, right? In the UK, we're an island nation, so... So I think the the times it's been really snowy, at least in the last few years, is partly because we've had warm seas and cold air. So the air comes in off Scandinavia, goes over the relatively warm North Sea where it gets a bunch of moisture, and then that's the sort of perfect recipe, I think, for snow in the UK, right? I think that's right. And actually, that brings me to a question. Can you get snow over the sea? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. You do, it's just really hard to measure it, right? Because really <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't hang around very long. But it sounds like Phil, you sounds like you might have some some experience with it. We we like to measure snow falling out of clouds typically. So how do you do that? Presumably you don't paraglide to do it. We fly around in our research aircraft, which is a four-engine BA146. It carries some probes under the wings. So this is the kind of jet plane you might take to go on an easy jet flight to Germany or something like that. It's a substantial aircraft. It's the type of aircraft you might have taken a few years ago. Right. (laughs) (laughs) A pilot friend of mine said BAE-146s were powered by four hair dryers under the the wings. (laughs) And so were you guys flying under the cloud then while it's snowing? No, we could fly under the cloud, we could fly through the cloud, looking at the snow growth within the cloud and then observing it as it falls out of the bottom assuming that the temperature at the bottom of the cloud is still below zero Celsius, obviously. Otherwise, the snow would have melted and it would be falling as rain. So how, when you're on the aircraft, how do you measure a, a snowflake? Do you just take a photo of it? just look at it? It's close to that, actually. We have a range of different techniques. We have some probes which are basically called optical array probes, which have a, a little linear array of photo detectors, which is illuminated by a laser. If a snow crystal passes through that laser beam, it'll shadow that detector array. So you sample the detector array at a rapid rate, and that 
builds up a pixelated image of each crystal. How does it tell the difference between a, a water droplet and a, and a, and a, and a snow crystal? Shape is the is the principal discriminant. Obviously, you know, you expect water drops to be spherical and snow crystals to be a whole range of shapes. So, Phil, last time we had an episode, we mentioned briefly this idea of clouds glaciating. So I was wondering if you could run us through, how do you take water droplets in a normal cloud and how do they become ice crystals and icy things in a cloud? It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly it's possible to get water drops at highly supercooled temperatures all the way down. So, so by supercooled, so you mean it's colder than it's, you might it's think cold, it should be? It's colder than zero Celsius. <laughs> yeah. So water drops don't automatically freeze if you lift them to those cold temperatures. In fact, you can only guarantee that they will have frozen by the time you get down as cold as about minus 38. So... One of the things that you can do, you probably covered already, cloud droplets are very small. They don't fall very rapidly. So in order to make them start to fall, you have to persuade them to get together into something bigger. Now, in our latitudes, you know, the mid-latitudes and up into polar regions, um, one of the most efficient ways of doing that is to form an ice crystal within that cloud of supercooled droplets. What then happens is what's sometimes referred to as the Bergeron process. That's named after Norwegian scientist Tor Bergeron, who first named it. And that relies on the fact that once you've formed an ice crystal, Uh the vapour pressure between liquid drops and ice crystals is different. So, in fact, you get a vapour pressure gradient between the liquid drops right. and the ice crystals. Okay, stand back, Doug. We're going to do some physics here. You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so by vapor pressure, let's, let me take a run at this. So you've got some water with some air above it, okay? And you've got molecules of water, and they sort of jump out the water into the air, and they jump out the air into the water going backwards and forwards. So you get an equilibrium between these two, which governs how much of your water is liquid water and how much is gassy water. This is your saturation vapor pressure. Yes. Okay. File that away and remember that, okay? You get the same thing with air and ice. And so is the point here, I think, that water molecules in ice are quite strongly bound together. The saturation vapour pressure is lower over an ice surface than it is over a water surface. That's exactly right. Okay, so what happens is as soon as you start forming ice, it sucks all the water into ice at the expense of liquid water. It's so difficult talking about water because you tend to think of water as liquid water, don't you? So this is the Bergeron process, right? Yes. So So what you're telling me is if you've got some ice there, the water all wants to become ice and not be water. So there's quite a cool story about how Bergeron first discovered this. So it was theorised in 1911 by some other guy. I presume Bergeron's Norwegian because the Norwegians were doing a lot of interesting stuff with weather about this time. But about 10 years later, Bergeron was walking through a forest and he noticed that when the temperature was below freezing, the clouds didn't come below the tops of the canopy of the trees in the forest. When the temperature was above freezing, the clouds would come right down into the forest. And so he realised this is because the ice crystals on the trees were scavenging all the cloud water droplets into oh, ice on the trees, right? Interesting. So this was the, his first sort of observation of what became known as the Bergeron process. Okay, I hadn't heard that story yeah. <laughs> before. That's really good. Was he doing any other experiments at the time then about I think he was snow, just going for a walk. Was was <laughs> I, I think that the absolute you know, necessity in science of going for a good walk. Yeah. That's true. How many great inventions and ideas have probably come out of someone going for a walk? Darwin used to walk around his garden, I think. <laughs> this is necessary. This so, is yeah. necessary. So what other things do we know about snow then? 
before we move on, we started off there talking about measuring snow over the sea. I want to know if you're flying looking for bad weather. Are you flying into snow and snow clouds trying to make observations or are you generally trying to miss those things? No, we, you know, we will absolutely be aiming for the snow-bearing clouds. That's why flying on the research aircraft is so much fun, isn't it? You get to fly into all these exotic, dodgy weather types that you wouldn't, you'd normally try to be avoiding the plane. Up to a point. Yeah. <laughs> Up to a point. So we've talked about how snow is a type of precipitation and we've talked about in a previous episode about how rains form. So there are three things we needed to form rain, right? Who can remember what they are? (laughs) So you can form it with orographic uplift. Oh, the three ways of forming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, Um, with fronts. Yeah, uh, temperature gradient. Weather fronts, orographic uplift and the last one was convection. First order, that's the way we form precipitation. So do we reckon that's still the same for snow, which is a slightly different type of precipitation? Yes, it is. Yeah. So the interesting one I think about this is convection, right? So when you think of convection, we talked last time about these huge cumulonimbus clouds in the tropics as, you know, a classic, really convective system. So you need heat. We've said that. But obviously for snow, you need it to be cold. So can you get both at once? Yes, you can. I mean, in fact, we were we were doing a measurement campaign just this August where we were looking at the formation of ice and snow crystals in tropical convective clouds. Oh, really? So presumably that's because these clouds get pushed so far up into the top of the atmosphere where it's cold, it starts to make ice and snow. Yes, where we were flying, which was around the Cape Verde Islands, Mm -hmm. the freezing level, the altitude at which the temperature is zero Celsius, was about 17,000 feet in that area. But that means once the clouds get above that altitude, get to colder temperatures, then you start to see ice crystals form. So th- there's also a, a concept of thunder snow. Has oh, anybody I was going to mention this? this. I saw this scroll by the other day and I thought, ah, oh, that would be great to talk about. Have you looked it up? Extent, How yeah. do you get thunder snow? Well, presumably you get convection and then you get thunder and you also yeah. get snow. But one of the places that this is really prevalent is downwind of the Great Lakes in oh, America. Oh, uh, the lake effect snow. Yeah. yeah. I, there were some problems maybe last year, weren't there? Some yeah, really, uh, really strong snowfall, really heavy snowfall. So this is sort of an extreme example of what we were talking about before with warm water and cold air. Presumably in America, it's particularly exacerbated around the Great Lakes because it can really come down straight off Alaska and the Arctic and places like that and, and then hit this relatively warm water. Yeah, but apparently that's a big sort of area for thundersnow in America as well. And you get a lot of ice formed in those situations as well, don't you? I mean, you see these classic pictures of the sides of the Great Lakes where they're just ice on everything and it's huge and yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah. yeah nothing. Like so nothing who knows how ice storms work then? You need a very particular structure of the temperature above the ground. So you probably will have a region where snow is actually forming at high altitudes. Mm -hmm. If that then falls into a layer where the temperature just rises above freezing, Mm -hmm. then those snow crystals will melt Uh and form raindrops. Those raindrops then fall a bit further back into colder air you know, it's quite normal to have a temperature inversion. So you have warm air lying over cold air much closer to the surface. Mm-hmm. You've then got raindrops, which are falling into air that is below freezing. And at that point, so when they hit a surface, so as soon they as, freeze. As soon as they hit a surface, they will then freeze and, so the, and this coat goes, it with ice. This goes back to what we were talking about with cloud condensation nuclei in the previous episode. So we were talking about how to make a droplet really, the most practical way is you want a little seed, which the droplet forms on top of. But um, we also talked about with ice crystals, they can shatter and you can have sort of ice multiplication where you can form ice crystals on top of very small ice seeds. So I guess the point here is that with 
a block of you know snow or ice or something like that from a cloud. If it melts, it might not have a cloud condensation nucleus inside the droplet anymore. So it's uh, there's there's nothing for it to freeze onto if the temperature gets low again. So as soon as it hits the surface, that's what triggers the freezing process. It may not have a particle within it which is active at freezing it at that temperature. The ice crystal will have been created at a colder temperature. It's exactly the same as with cloud droplets. You need particular types of aerosol within... So aerosol these particles, right? Yes, to create a freezing event. Those particular particles are referred to as ice nuclei rather than cloud condensation nuclei. And generally speaking, you will find that more aerosol are active as ice nuclei when you get to cold temperatures. Oh, I see. Okay. So you you may have a crystal that's formed at a very cold temperature. It falls down through this temperature inversion, melts into a supercooled rain particle. It's still carrying that Okay, ice nucleus within it, but it's no longer at that temperature. It's no longer active. Oh. And then when it gets back into the colder air closer to the surface, it, it freezes because it's yes. desperate to freeze. But yeah. It doesn't have anything suitable to freeze on. So the, these ice storms in America can be really damaging, can't they? Because you get these enormous weights of ice sort of um, freezing onto telegraph wires and things like this and, and bringing pylons down and that kind of yeah. thing. So just to clarify, so you're calling it an ice storm, yeah. but it's not actually ice that's Falling. Flying out yeah. of the the window and thing like a blizzard would it's be. Super it's, cool no, water. It's, it's the water. Freezing rain is the, the technical term. Is probably the best technical term. Okay. Yeah. Because the minute it hits something, it freezes, yes. and that's yeah, when yeah. you get the ice. Ah, yeah, okay. So, what about any other things that people associate with snow? I associate snowmen with snow. Anything? Know anything snowball about fights, snowball fights? You know, I did find something about you know the largest ever snowball fight Go happened on, in 2014 or something in Seattle, which had like <laughs> 5,600 or something people so, involved, which is you know like a little bit larger scale how many than anything. People? It was like 5,600 and it's something. An yeah, Guinness World Record. So if anyone's up for a challenge, there you go, if we have a snowy winter. So another thing that I think is quite interesting about snow, we think of it as this really cold thing, but actually it's got amazing thermal insulation properties, mm. right? So as any mountaineer knows, if you're perishing on a hillside somewhere, you can dig a snow cave. Dig and, in, yeah. Yeah, you can keep the temperature about zero degrees when it can be as low as minus 40 outside. So this is the the way an igloo works, right? But it's really fascinating because it the snow cover lowers the temperature above it, I think, because it's reflecting a lot of radiation. But underneath, it's protecting the ground yeah. oh, and, it, and it's that, insulating uh, it. And I as you said, you some, sometimes it's protecting it. crops, isn't it? I, yeah. It's, it's important for protecting crops as well as producing a store of water for the spring as mm. well. Oh, that's interesting. So it's got some really unusual properties. That I can't think of anything else that might do that. Like it's, It makes things get colder above it, but keeps things warmer below it almost. So. Uh, well, yes, that's right. I mean, the... One of the things with snow lying on the ground, and this sounds rather silly thing to say in some ways, lying snow is a very good black body in terms of its thermal emission properties. So explain what you mean by a black body. Uh, A black body is the term used to describe a surface which is a perfect emitter of infrared radiation. So basically it emits its heat back out again in this infrared wavelength. So whatever heat it does have, I know it sounds silly to talk about heat and snow. So snow is a very good emitter of thermal infrared radiation. So that white snow surface is still sitting there emitting thermal radiation, exactly like the non-snow-covered surface would be doing. Mm -hmm. But because it's white, 
clearly, and in the daytime, it will be reflecting the sunlight away. So I think we've so, mentioned before this concept of albedo. We talked about that in the podcast, haven't we? So, Doug, run us through albedo and snow then. So basically, the, the whiter the snow is, yeah. the more it reflects the shortwave radiation. We get into the climate properties here because, of course, if you make snow, if you put dirt or soot or carbon onto snow, then, then you make it less good at reflecting radiation and that will change the, the energy balance. Well, it means it, it, it absorbs more heat, right? And we know what exactly. happens to snow when it absorbs heat. Well, it tends to melt and stop it, being I, I guess eventually it'll melt if and, you overcome it. And there are some very good images that you can see on the internet at the moment of the ice caps in Greenland, for example, mm-hmm. downwind of the North American continent. So all the smoke from forest fires over North America, a lot of that carbon gets deposited on the Greenland ice cap. So this is a negative climate feedback, isn't it? And by that, what we mean is if you deposit something like carbon on a white surface like snow, you make it dark, absorbs more sunlight, heats up the snow, snow melts, melted snow isn't white anymore, so it doesn't reflect this heat. So the ground heats up and melts even more snow. So you can see that in the climate record, actually. I had a a look at the AR5, the IPCC, um, the observations over the last so 50 these, or so years. These are these big climate reports, the, right, that the, the UN climate report, and we've just been through the Paris conference. So well, the AR5 was written to really inform this series of conferences on climate. So it's a big record of, of climate modelling and climate observations. And we do see, actually, a reduction in spring snow cover in the Northern Hemisphere. So the records aren't great, I think, over the early part of the century, but the later part of the century, they're much better. And so you see about 1.5% reduction in snow cover in the Northern Hemisphere over the last, per decade that is, over the last okay, three so or four the, decades. This is one of the sort of indicators of a changing climate, right? That That's right. Got. So you've got the indicators and then when you when you work through the physics and you make the projections and you're looking at a reduction in snow cover of between, well, if, if we were lucky, it would stop where it was if we sort of curbed emissions. But yeah. if you really crank up the carbon emissions into the atmosphere, then you're looking at a 20 to 30% reduction of snow cover in the spring. And that, I mean, there's a bunch of climate feedbacks that we've been talking about, yeah, Neil, yeah. but also climate impacts. We should do an episode on climate feedbacks at one point. They're really interesting. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll collate all of them. But uh, yeah, so things like um, like we were talking earlier, you're storing snow uh, or snow is a good storage of water that can feed crops in the spring. I know I've got some colleagues in Oregon who haven't seen much snow in the mountains and in the Pacific Northwest over the last Few so it's affecting the sort of, we call it the hydrological cycle, right? The exactly. way the water is distributed around the atmosphere and things. That's right. So you, you end up with droughts in the summer because you haven't had a snowfall yeah, in the yeah, winter. Although I suppose alternatively, if you get too much snowfall in somewhere you're not expecting it, when it melts in the spring, then you just get terrible flooding. Well, we've, we've so, seen that here in Exeter, you know, uh, flooding in the city centre because of lots of snow up on Exmoor and you see that melt and come down a few days later. So, yeah. So is anybody ready for a fact off? Ooh. Have you got any fascinating facts? Okay, hang on. Have you been preparing for this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what about largest snowflake? Guesses. Unless you know the answer. Claire, I'm looking at you. I don't know. And my lips are sealed. <laughs> Not saying anything. I, I don't know. Go on, guess. Think it's several, several centimetres. It certainly is several centimetres. <laughs> any any reason? I, I was, was going to go for smaller than that. So, so the Guinness World Record in Montana is 30 Eight centimetres, count them. 15 a single snowflake. Single snowflake. So how are snowflakes? Well, that, depend, that depends on what you call a single snowflake. <laughs> it, it, I, would, I would call that an aggregate. Yeah, would you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was also, I'm always sceptical about, I mean, 
all respect to Guinness World Records, I'm sure they think about this kind of thing. But I'm always skeptical about records set in like 1887. This was set. It feels like some guy reckons he saw a snowflake and reported <laughs> it. Uh, it does seem rather Pictures large, it doesn't didn't it? Happen. I also I came across the same fact yeah. and read that it was eight inches thick. Eight which, inches thick. Which that so, seems even more ridiculous so to me. To, uh, you, uh, I hope if you've been reading these facts, you can tell me how these snowflakes form because uh, I'm going to go to Phil if you're not coming up with that. Phil's in the sketch. Well, this is, no, this, is, this, is, this is actually one of the processes that we try to study with the aircraft called aggregation, basically, where single snow crystals form at a high altitude. As they fall down through the atmosphere, they will come into contact with other snowflakes, stick together, forming what we call an aggregate. That will probably fall a little bit faster still. Therefore, it will start to collect more and more snowflakes. So what affects how these snowflakes stick together then? Presumably, if they start melting a bit, they're more sticky? Or does it not work like that? When you look at what people might think of as a a typical snow crystal, one of these kind of six-pointed stars, obviously that's got lots of, you know, if if those crystals come together, there are lots of ways that they can just kind of physically... Oh, because there's arms and branches on them. They've they've got arms and branches which just get tangled. So so people talk about different types of snow then. So if you go skiing in Whistler or something, you get lovely powder snow. And if you go skiing in Scotland, I can tell you, you don't. So, uh, (laughs) So how do you... How do you make different types of snow in a cloud? And what other different types of snow we can get? Temperature and humidity are okay. the two things. Now, I've, I've got a diagram here, which obviously around the table you can see. But we'll stick it on the website afterwards. Doesn't, doesn't come over very well on a podcast. But this is a, a, a kind of scheme that was developed over many years of observations, in this case by a couple of scientists in Japan. So this is just looking at the variation of what's called crystal habit, the shape of the mm. crystal, if you like, as a function of temperature. So, so that's right. So we don't just get... Um, and, and the relative humidity. So we don't just um, get snowflakes like people might think of them. There's also you get sort of rods, don't you, and plates and all yeah. different kinds of shape. And because this crystal habit does vary with temperature, you, I mean, this shows just like the basic crystal type which mm. would grow at those temper- conditions of temperature and humidity. Yeah. Obviously, if those crystals fall they will encounter different conditions. And you can get combitate crystals which kind of change from one growth type to another. And So there was a famous incident, I think it was in the early 90s, wasn't there, where British Rail got woefully misquoted as saying something along the lines of the trains were running late because of the wrong type of snow. I can't say any, well, anything labelled wrong. On yeah. that <laughs> I think you'll find it goes back actually to the early 1980s. Oh, right. And according to the Wikipedia article, for there is indeed a Wikipedia article entitled The Wrong Kind of Snow. Uh-huh. It was actually the journalist on the BBC who finally uttered the words about the wrong kind of yeah. snow, but it, obviously it stuck to So the what, what were they driving at with the wrong type of snow? Well, what they, what they were driving at was just that, as you've already said, in different conditions you can get snow crystals which like to stick together or you can get conditions where the snow crystals remain powdery, mm. which obviously the skiers like. Yeah. When the crystals remain powdery like that, when the trains were running into London through this powdery snow, rather than kind of sticking to the outside of the trains, it was getting sucked into the ventilation really? vents, you know, melting inside all of the electrical systems. Oh, and, and causing all sorts and of... causing all sorts of electrical failures. And, and there, was, there was a similar incident on Eurostar trains coming through northern France... Oh, that was that was more recently, about six or seven years ago. 
and that was exactly the same thing once you know once the snow kind of blows in through little cracks and holes in the machinery melts and you know electricity and water don't mix does that imply we'd normally have a different type of snow most of the time then a more sticky type of snow and is that because of our meteorology that we get that? Are you more likely to find powder snow, I guess, well, the, in the skiing resorts the, and sticky the, snow here? The, the, the occasion when the wrong kind of snow was first coined was, I mean, I was still living in southeast England at the time, and I remember that winter fairly well. It was unusually cold. So the type of snow crystals that we would have been seeing would be those that are associated with just a slightly colder temperature. Yeah, so we so. tend to not be severely cold in the UK, whereas I suppose the places where you get really powdery snow, it tends to be when there's even colder temperatures. Mm. So the prevailing snow, if you like, in the and, UK is the no. sort of wet, sticky stuff. And you're up a mountain, so well, yeah. it's colder still. Yeah, we need to come back to that about why it's cold at the top of mountains. We'll just file that away. Uh, for yeah, the next I, I've been asked that by a listener and I oh, yeah? avoided answering the question in person. So All right. we should well, come ne- back to that. I've been asked that by a listener too, who's my mum. Oh, well, so maybe we should address that in the next episode. <laughs> but coming back to the idea of the snow in Britain, though, actually, yeah. it does make sense if you think about it. You know, we associate snow with uh, snowmen and snowballs we talked about that a bit earlier and you wouldn't be able to make that out of this really powdery stuff so yeah. i think the type of snow that we instinctively think of in the uk is is one it's more fun it's more fun well yeah i don't know it depends if you're <laughs> a skier or a snowboarder doesn't it <laughs> so what about the snowiest place in the uk any bets oh i i know this I, i'm well, guessing I, it's the cairngorms it certainly is the cairngorms because hey. i looked it up earlier and, oh, and, I, and also the least snowy place in the uk oh that's interesting Devin. what's that Cornwall. Oh, close, well, there you close, go. pretty close. Oh. Yeah. Well, well, Devon's got Dartmoor in it, so, yeah. which is pretty snowy. So I used to go on holiday to Aviemore in Cairngorms as a child. And even in the middle of summer, I remember there still being snow on the mountains that you could see from there. Oh, that's right. You get snow patches, don't you, which, yeah. which survive even though the conditions are, are greater than zero degrees C. And yeah, so I think they're in sort of shady hollows. You know, I'm not saying there's tons of snow on the, on the mountains, but it is interesting that it seems to generally, I think, persist throughout the whole year. It can last in places. Yeah, and I mean, I think you said it's the snowiest place it's got sort of 76 days of snowfall or something per year i think in the uk which you don't tend to associate with the uk climate particularly do you i learned to ski in the cairngorms as a child you need to really master the transition between snow and bare heather which takes a bit <laughs> get used to <laughs> okay so anybody else got any fascinating facts about uh, so i've got snow? one go on then doug so you can bear with me on this <laughs> you can use snow as a time machine oh yeah you know about this? Oh, really? So think of what are the what are the you can you can what are the coldest places on the earth? Not including the atmosphere. What are the what are the coldest? It's the large ice sheets, right? Greenland, this feels like it could be another Antarctica. trick question, but it's not. It's <laughs> so these places sometimes they're fairly dry. Some of these big ice sheets are really high. Sometimes they're almost deserts. They don't snow very much. But yeah, the they're, they're literally classed as deserts, aren't they? Because it's about liquid water. Deserts are fine by availability. But, but even the, the amount of precipitation is not much. But it is very cold. And we we're just talking about the snow lasting throughout the year. The snow does last throughout the year. Mm. So what happens is uh, the snow falls, and then gradually it gets covered up by next year's snow as well and it gets deeper and deeper these ice sheets get deeper and deeper and the snow gets compressed and compressed Uh and it turns into ice 
and it keeps going, keeps going. So, so you're talking you know, about climatological ice cores. We're there, talking about yeah. ice cores. You're talking about ice cores. But you can use it. Richard Alley, who's this great climate scientist, wrote this book called Two Mile Time Machine. So that's <laughs> a really good Richard Alley impression for people who don't know him. We really need look to him, post look him up on the web. We Richard need to post Alley, a definitely. link to Richard Alley. He he does fantastic videos playing his guitar and singing songs in a very sort of Richard Alley fashion. He's a great science communicator. Great guy. And, but also really good science on these ice cores. So, so it turns out if you drill down into an ice core in Antarctica or Greenland, you can extract layers. You know, some of these things are two or three miles long. You can extract thousands of layers, each of which is sort of corresponds. So it's like tree rings, right? You it's can see the different layers. Tree rings, except, except rather than sort of looking at the gaps between them, you're extracting the gas that formed in bubbles. So you can get a composition of the atmosphere that, you know, back through history. Uh, or these isotope ratios, which allow you to sort of work out what the climate was doing at the time. So we, should, we should definitely do an episode on paleoclimatological stuff as well, because there's be all, all kinds of weird and wacky ways of guessing what the temperature was previously. Wasn't well, there? you say guessing. I, I mean, these are... Uh, no, that's, that's absolutely... Yeah, slightly more scientific. So, Estimating. Some informed guesses, yeah. I would say. But but yeah, so you can look at the, the climate record at those places back through, I think the longest one is 800,000 years. I guess it's a really good idea about the relationship between what's in the atmosphere and the climate over the last, you know most of a million years. All right, so shall we see what our good friend Catherine Ross in the Met Office Archives has got to say this week? Over to Catherine. So looking around the archive this month, I've been looking at snow and the sorts of materials that we've got on that. Did you know the traditional image of snow at Christmas was actually fostered by Charles Dickens? Uh, He describes a snowy, dingly dell in the picnic papers and also mentions snow in a Christmas carol as though it happened every year at Christmas. In truth, the records actually show that snow around Christmas is not a particularly regular meteorological trend. Indeed, significant snowfall can actually occur in many months of the year. And in the archive, we hold a wide variety of data relating to snow, including the Snow Survey of Great Britain, which you can find on our Digital Library and Archive, and a large collection of private weather diaries. These diaries are particularly interesting, actually, because they enable us to extend our meteorological record back from the beginning of official observations when the Met Office was founded in 1854, and they can take us all the way back to the late 1600s. They also give us an insight not only into the weather conditions themselves, you know, it was raining, it was snowy, it was windy, but how people were actually affected by them and responded to them several despite being cut off by the snow. And one even mentions the very last frost fair held on the Thames in 1814, which was quite, must have been quite a magical occasion. One of the more unusual references I found in there to snow is a poem by one Samuel Jackson of Market Harborough, who describes a heavy snowfall which actually occurred in April 1876. And the poem goes as this. 14th of April 76 will long remembered be by those who tried to travel out the way they could not see. For blinding snow was falling fast, the wind was also strong, and snow lay on the ground so deep you could not get along. So much unlike an April day, it was more like cold December. So, with all these talk of all this talk of white Christmases, the the question really we're all begging to know is whether it's going to be a white Christmas this year. First of all, what is a white Christmas? <laughs> That's why I looked this up earlier, and apparently, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a single snowflake falling somewhere in the UK in the 24 hours of the 25th of December. I think there's a subtlety above that. Oh, is it? It's a single snowflake observed falling somewhere in the UK. (laughs) That's fair enough. That's that's harder. 
<laughs> so there's a there's an important difference there, isn't it? But it used to be based just on records at the Met Office building in London, but now yeah. we've got all these observations from all over the world and all over the UK. Even there's an interest in betting on a white Christmas. Now. That's right. So my, my pub quiz knowledge would have told me it's a snowflake on the Met Office building in London, but it's not that anymore, right? Okay. So it's easier now. Is it? You, we get more white Christmases these days than we used to. I suppose you do actually. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, I think if you look statistically, so we can't predict whether it's going to be a white Christmas this year or not at this point when we're doing the recording. Let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Don't don't put any money on anything we say for the next few minutes. Um, but 38 times in the last 54 years, a snowflake has fallen somewhere in the UK on Christmas Day. So that's more than 50% of the time we've actually had well, a white Christmas. Yeah, I mean, presumably, as we said on the top of the Cairncombs, there's a pretty, you know, decent chance... Surely I remember as a kid it was a white Christmas every year. So I think I think the chance of a snowflake falling somewhere is reasonably high, but the chance of you actually getting proper lying snow, which you remember from your childhood dog birds, <laughs> is much, much smaller and maybe only like four times in the last fifty years. With some of those being quite recently. So I mean I remember recently, two thousand and nine. 2010, we had loads of snow down here in the southwest. Even in Devon. Even in Devon, which I guess is quite unusual, but nothing of the patch. So do you know when the worst recent winter was for the UK or one of the ones that gets claimed as... In terms of snow? In terms of snow. Well, which winter? So 1946 to 1947 was a terrible winter in the UK. And in March 1947... There was a snow depth of 1.65 metres recorded in North Wales. So that's about the same height as me, almost. <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, these are the sorts of snowfalls that you expect to maybe see over the, the US or something. But it blocked trains, it caused power shortages, people So that were year it, it snowed somewhere in the country every day for three months or something like that, three winters. Did it really? It? Yeah. Okay. And I guess that's going to have a huge impact with the country just recovering from war, right? And that's still true. in rationing. yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, I think the rest of Europe got quite badly affected as well. And, you know, people died in, in yeah, snow-related I mean, incidents. But. I like a white Christmas as much as the next person, but there's, you know, we don't want that again, do we? No, no, I think that's a bit extreme. But it's yeah. really interesting because it all re- relates back to the weather at the time, doesn't it? So we talked mm. earlier about the winds coming from the east. Right. And that's really strong related to the fact that there was a pressure system sat over Scandinavia that just didn't move. And it just meant we had winds from the east coming mm. towards the UK for three or four months straight masses and masses of snow all right well i think that's enough for this episode thanks everybody for listening and here's wishing everybody a good christmas and we'll see you in the new year for another episode of mostly weather all right merry Christmas. christmas mostly weather is a podcast by the uk met office